Hello, I'm Scotia Monkovich. Welcome back for another episode of Creative Responders In Conversation, our monthly interview series where we hear from people on the front lines of the arts and emergency management sector as they prepare, respond and recover from disaster. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. This interview series is just one part of our podcast offerings. We also have a documentary series that you can find in episode one to four of the Creative Responders podcast feed, where we unpack one case study in each episode, visiting impacted communities, speaking to people with lived experience of disasters, and bringing in a range of perspectives on the power of the arts and creativity in disaster management. We're currently working on season two of the documentary series and look forward to sharing that with you later in the year. But for now, these one-on-one interviews have been a way for us to spend time hearing from some of the key creative thinkers across both the arts and emergency sector, and we hope you've been enjoying the conversations so far. Today's guest is Alex Kelly. She is an organiser, artist and filmmaker committed to social and climate justice, and her work takes on many forms in both the arts and activist space. Most recently, she has spearheaded a speculative futures practice in collaboration with David Pledger, which took shape as a series of digital gatherings called Assembly for the Future. Alex has a range of documentary producing credits and for the past few years has been working closely with several Aranda families and director Maya Newell to support the impact goals of their documentary feature film, In My Blood It Runs. The film is currently available to Australian viewers on ABC iView. We cover so much in our discussion, but one of the things that really stayed with me is the idea of the importance of creating a robust space for imaginative and nuanced dialogue around possible futures, particularly in this moment in time when we are questioning so many of the power structures that have been so rigid for so long. I hope you enjoy this conversation with creative responder Alex Kelly. Welcome to Creative Responders, Alex. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, great to be here. Well, I am on Yagara Turable country today. It's a pretty crisp autumn day. We have the what's called echo winds coming through Brisbane, Queensland uh, at the moment. So cold toes, but clear blue skies. How is it where you are? I'm on Jaja Wurrung country in regional Victoria and it's a bit overcast but there's a bit of sun peeking through and it's pretty cold. (laughs) Yeah it's funny interesting how we talk about cold here and there's a very different cold down where you are. (laughs) Absolutely I think I think there's a slight eye roll when people you know north of Sydney talk about cold weather from those of us who are down south. (laughs) Indeed. So Alex you've had a very rich and varied career, some of which I've been following and uh, connecting in along the way, projects involving activism, the arts, filmmaking. Uh, We'll talk about some of your specific projects uh, in a little while, but I thought we might start off by looking uh, to the future, given that's what you've been spending a lot of your time thinking about lately. So I'm talking about the Assembly for the Future project that you're in the midst of at the moment, a digital gathering Um, presented as part of Bleed Festival at the Arts House and the Campbelltown Arts Centre. I was fortunate to join in the two gatherings you've had so far and I found it incredibly thought-provoking. 
Um, but for our listeners who may not know uh, this project, could you tell us a bit about what the Assembly for the Future is and what you hope to achieve through these gatherings that you're holding? Sure. Um, I'm so pleased to hear that you're able to be part of them as well because um, I think that they are something to be experienced. They're kind of hard to describe. I mean, I can de- I, I can describe the design, but, um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear about your experiences as well. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a kind of an immersive experience and, and fed by a whole range of people who are participating. You're, that's very right. Yeah, and I think every different, every single person's experience would be quite different um, based on the rooms they end up in as well. So... Um, initially I had been working over the last sort of four or five years, um, developing a series of works under the banner of, uh, practice that I'm calling the things we did next. I'm collaborating closely with David Pledger, um, from Not Yet It's Difficult, a theatre and performance art maker and writer. And we were on the verge of premiering our live performance work in June. Um, back in March, we realised that given the, um, our growing awareness of what the pandemic meant that we wouldn't be doing the live work so like many people we had to decide what it was that we were going to to do and we decided not to try and necessarily replicate that work in an online environment but actually to create something new um, that was responsive to the material conditions of the times and so we really decided um, that we would keep, we would we would stay with the the ideas of um, futuring and world building and so on, but that we would flatten the project and make it as democratic and participatory as possible because we thought that the um, opportunity to do futuring and world building and imagine other possible futures was something that we all need so much right now. So. It's it's takes place on Zoom. Um, we did look at a whole lot of other platforms, but we decided on Zoom partly for its familiarity and also because it's actually um, the best platform at this stage in terms of um, bringing in access um, services such as Auslan interpreters and captioning. And so it's a meeting um, on Zoom. It, it runs in that format and it starts with a provocation from a first speaker followed by two respondents. Um, you're welcome to the event by our digital usher to the future, Robbie, and I am the keeper of time who steers us between 2020 and 2029 um, from where the first speaker delivers their provocation. After this kind of triangulation of of discussion between the first speaker and the two respondents, uh, after a short intermission, all of our participants, who we um, deem to be future builders, uh, go into 10 different breakout rooms, each with a moderator, and they're encouraged to generate other possible futures based on the provocations. Um, Each of those moderators then publishes a dispatch from the future, we also have two artists in residence uh, who take place in part, of, part in the assembly and then we also have um, some future archivists who are making sound pieces. So after these three assemblies for the future, we will have had around uh, 350 people participate in them and we'll be generating 50 different dispatches, artworks and archives from the future um, and we hope that they are contradictory and contested and messy and very very different in form and style and content um, because we're very interested in 
multiplicity and complexity and really opening up um, lots and lots of different stories because the real um, genesis of the project and the kind of sort of driving um, aspiration is that we start to consider that many, many futures are possible um, because we believe that if we practice that art of imagining many, many possible futures, it's going to serve us better in the present to pursue those other kinds of futures rather than the seemingly inevitable paths that we're on. Mm. It's interesting that our, our work in disaster management, as you know, we, we um, in the sector, they often talk about this cycle of disaster uh, or disaster management. And there's nothing in um, there is sort of a term which is called preparedness. Um, but I'm kind of interested in how you understand that term practice rather than necessarily preparedness. And what do you think might be the difference? So you talk about this project as in practicing good futures or looking at ways of how we practice more positive outcomes or hopeful outcomes or more um, united and accessible futures for people. How, how do you sort of understand that in what we might in disaster management call preparedness? Uh, I think, and um, forgive me that I don't have a great depth of knowledge about the definition of preparedness in that context, but I think perhaps practice um, allows us to think in an open-ended way um, and perhaps we're not building towards a particular set of scenarios, rather we're trying to sort of open up to more and more possibilities. Um, I'm also interested in practice because it sounds like something that is on a continuum that never finishes, whereas for me preparing sounds like we're preparing for something that might be um, more clear already Already defined defined. and and perhaps linear Um, of course I know that within disaster preparedness people understand that all sorts of um, unexpected things can happen but but often our preparedness is as you say quite specific and it's interesting at the moment with all of these different cascading issues that we're dealing with we certainly we haven't necessarily projected ourselves or practiced um, multiple impacts Absolutely. And it's, I think when we think about practice um, as something that is continual and um, think about things like things being a process and always in process, um, I think we can try and let go of the idea of anything ever being finished or complete or Mm. fixed. And ultimately that also pushes us to let go of certainty and arrival and, um, and, absolute safety and security and fixedness and and all of those things are very hard for us to let go of because we have instincts towards wanting to pin things down and know them and those natural human instincts have been I think um, really sort of negatively encouraged by neoliberalism and capitalism and now with um, you know surveillance capitalism where everything is sought to be measured and contained and controlled and um, you know made su- surveyed and understood and pinned down and so on um, which is very different from um, the way in which well it's a to- totally different than life it is, isn't it? it is. life doesn't uh, frame us no like it's that not at all. how the natural world works it's not how ecology works it's not how bodies and humanity and um, and our you know experience 
works. But it is natural, I think, for us to um, aspire to be able to understand and control and be safe. Um, but I think actually if we can practice um, letting go of certainty and instead learn to look towards each other um, in the uncertain and to trust um, our relationships with each other in the face of uncertainty, that's a very different impulse to turning inwards towards, um, you know, a false sense of certainty and no ability. Um, and so this idea of multiple futures, um, some that intersect, some that contradict um, and lots of different voices and forms is, is, is sort of, yeah, it is an exercise in practising um, complexity and practising uncertainty. Yeah, in the container of what we're calling a kind of an art project. So what is it you think that the creatives bring to this space that we may not necessarily see, for example, in disaster management um, uh, or within other sections of our life? What, what do you think it is that we as artists bring into that space to enable us to open up this sense of um, possible dif different futures or safe spaces to be able to unpack that? Well, I certainly notice in my own inner worlds that, you know, I have a very strong interest and um, pull towards the intellectual and, you know, I read a lot and I watch a lot of documentaries and I, and I want to understand and I seek to know and reflect and analyse and, you know, I have that kind of way of thinking. Um, but when I'm engaged in um, both experiencing art as a participant or an audience member and certainly when I'm making art um, there are moments where I can move outside of that and it's not necessarily comfortable to sit in a space that is um, more mysterious or open or unknown or fictional um, and the, you know, I, I feel that tension internally. You know, the the, the tension to um, analyze and articulate and clarify, um, pushing against uh, explorations of something that words doesn't words don't fit. Something deeper about who I am or who we are and how we are together and connection to country and futures and histories um, so I think artists um, not always but can bring um, an opening to you know something bigger and wider and more mysterious than our you know day-to-day -day narrower perhaps ways of engaging with the world and with ideas magic of the heart yeah perhaps <laughs> I know you, you've been um working closely in the past with author and social activist Naomi Klein and I've been particularly interested in this idea of disaster capitalism that she wrote about in her book The Shock Doctrine um, and I know that uh, that work that you've collaborated around has kind of influenced a lot of your work. How, how do these ideas that she brings through some of her writing influence choices around how you make a piece of work like The Assembly for the Future? Actually, just in terms of the way things circle back and circle back on each other, um, in our second assembly for the future, uh, Scott Ludlam said that a friend of his said, um, 
in times of a disaster, the first person with a plan on the table wins. Um, and that's essentially what Naomi Klein was talking about with the shock doctrine mm. as well, that in moments of shock or disaster or upheaval, um, it's a moment when um, it's, a, it's a huge opportunity for um, people to push forward a door opens to enable what isn't necessarily possible previously. Absolutely. Positive and negative. Exactly. And and for the last sort of 40 years or so, um, neoliberal capitalists have had the plan ready to go on the table every time, whether it's Hurricane Katrina or a war in Iraq or, you know, um, a fire or a, a tsunami, they are ready. Um, the way that schools get rebuilt, roads get rebuilt, uh, public infrastructure becomes privatised, uh, large companies are ready there, to, ready to do the rebuilding, they get the contracts um, and, and often... Um, you know, big big reforms towards uh, particularly privatisation or, um, yeah, corporate management of particular systems that may have had serious opposition in the past um, are suddenly swept in and often underwritten by public money um, in the under the kind of, um, you know, disaster recovery spend. And so I suppose I really started thinking more and more about the fact that we, we as progressives that want to see the future bend towards justice, we're lacking a plan, a really, really comprehensive plan. And I, I think we see um, really exciting glimmers of these possible plans emerging in, you know, the shape of the Green New Deal in the US and other um, build back better pushes and people's recovery pushes now that people are articulating around the pandemic. But they're not as thoroughly embedded across universities and within, um, you know, the business sector and pushed out by economists and think tanks, etc., in the way that the right and these neoliberal forces have done and have consolidated their plans in the last forty years. And mm, we don't have a, we don't have a kind of deep, resonant kind of platform which to to jump from no i mean we've got i mean we've got millions of people articulating other visions whether that's through ngos or social movements or artists or writers and that we do have think tanks and we do have researchers and but it but it's it, it's not as connected and it's not as we we haven't built as much power and so many of our institutions have become neoliberalized and conservative and hierarchical in how they, they run, that they're not fit for purpose for driving, um, you know, visionary, transformative change towards social change, real justice and liberation. And I suppose when I was really thinking about that, I thought a lot, you know, I think a lot of us that, um, that spend our lives working for justice often you know have these big moments where you're thinking am I doing the right thing you know should I be writing should I be researching should I be campaigning or what combination of all of these things or where do I put my energy and who do I collaborate with and I really started to think that um, the this space um, of practicing the imagination of working in speculative fiction could be one way of contributing towards the development of the plans because I feel like our imagination has been so cowed by 
by this neoliberalism and 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 the art and the art sector itself. I mean, what has happened to our festivals and our major arts institutions, and you know the kind of work that gets funded. Um, you know, in the in the more high profile and and more well resourced parts of our sector, are not what we need right now. You know, we need really mm. um, challenging, visionary, unusual work that comes from all kinds of different makers and and in in all kinds of forms. I mean, we see incredible and creative and vibrant and challenging work emerging in the tiny and the small and the medium sector. In, in DIY arts community and in fringe community and in self-publishing, particularly from uh, First Nations artists and the um, queer and trans artists and people of colour across the country. And it's so incredible, some of the, the work that's coming out of those communities. But it's not reaching the mainstream and we still see, you know, very... We see the same people in middle management and in artistic directing roles and in, you know, the same shows get programmed and tour through our festivals and our performing arts venues across the country. And, you know, it's sort of like, what? how is the arts, why is the arts sector lacking in imagination? How did even the arts become so kind of neoliberal? <laughs> like, this is a... Yeah, we're not, we're not practising our own practice. No, it's a, it's a disaster. <laughs> so, this is a... Well, it's kind of... It is interesting because uh, in the area of disaster management, there's a lot of new research that's coming out and, and kind of highlighting as if it's a kind of surprise that the thing that keeps communities uh, building into stronger futures is actually that social capital, the connections that people have, the relationships they have. And it's uh, through that rather than any other intervention that occurs that people have capacity to build um into what we might call recovery or some sort of more hopeful future after disaster. So I think, um, you know, we we don't necessarily as individuals or communities have uh, a feeling of success in that space. And I think the interesting thing about your project or maybe the potential of a project like yours is to ha- allow us to have feelings of some success so that we you know, is it the practice of success or is it a practice of experience that kind of builds us into a more of a connected, relational um, community? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, whenever we turn towards each other, whenever we have a reason to meet our neighbours, whether or not that's because we've all been forced to meet through a disaster or whether or not we've preempted that by, you know, organising into mutual aid groups or whether we've been invited to participate in some kind of um, assembly, um, we are often amazed by the wisdom that is around us. Like, wow, oh, wow, I've got this neighbour who's this ecologist or knows about the water flow or this person grows the most amazing food or this person is this particular kind of soil scientist or this person used to work in aged care or this person's written a book or, you know, this person speaks three languages when they they came to Australia in their 50s and learnt their fourth or or whatever it is and we, we... we see the amazing wisdom and creativity and um, knowledge that is in all of us and always and very close to us. And I think that that's a really big part of 
preparing and for what he, what we know is going to come. I mean, you know, Aaron Duddy Roy says the pandemic is a cuddly teddy bear compared to what we can expect um, with the worsening impacts of the climate crisis. And that is such a daunting metaphor. Um, well, it's, a, it's such a um, kind of double whammy, isn't it? It's like a warm warm hold and then a punch in the yeah, stomach at is, the same time. It's, it's, a, it's a very intense statement to contemplate. Well. But I think it's really... I think it's really important. The other reason I'm quite interested in futures is, and it's something that Naomi Klein talked about in her book, um, This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate, which is the project I worked on her with, which was um, she talked about the way in which the environmental movement had really sort of let us down by sort of saying, look, you don't have to change a lot, you know, we just have to, you know, adjust a few things. And and part of this, again, was because they're up against, you know, the neoliberal capitalist machine. And so they felt that they couldn't scare people, like, oh, we have to give people hopeful narratives, we have to tell people that it's going to be okay. And I think we've got to find a new way of talking about not just the future, but the present. And and again, going back mm. to this idea of uncertainty and holding difficult things with beautiful things, like that that's kind of the truth of life. You know, things die. We all die and think but things live and, and there is joy as well. And so I think it's about moving beyond hope and fear. Um and it's complex because when people are really traumatised or, um, you know, in the immediate face of a crisis, you want to offer the comfort of security and safety and future hope. You know, that, that, that this idea of like, you will move past this crisis, you will move past this trauma. And it's, it's, a, it's the right offer. To, I think it's the right instinct to offer that. But I think we need to be more robust Bust, more honest and more capable of saying to each other, um, you know, good and bad will always exist and we are going to be facing horrible crises that are going to have terrible environmental impacts and we are going to see terrible fires and storms and pandemics. But the, the agency and the choice in that is about how we treat each other. That and that those choices about how we relate to each other, how much we turn to each other, how much we remain open to each other, that's going to be the difference between totally horrific and traumatizing events and events where we can hold each other through those storms. Yeah, and potentially what uh, COVID has offered us, you know, as a whole of community impactful experience is to start to understand that not that's often what we're hearing you know that people are practicing reaching out and practicing how they might connect or understanding how vulnerable they are if they're not and i think i've heard you talk about this before that uh, in the immediate aftermath of a crisis there is this opening up and this um, wave of generosity and then and and associated wave of um happiness to connect with each other and recognition of the generosity but then it's heroic phase but then in the next phase um when things aren't immediately resolved and you know i think about those stories that we're not hearing enough of about people who are still living in tents you know on the south coast of new south wales and parts of victoria that were affected by the fires this summer what does it look like Mm. in the long haul can you still 
turn towards each other when when the crisis is longer and longer and i think that's the challenge yeah and how how do we how do we hold together when it is difficult and i think that's very uh, very real and it's interesting when i think about your your assembly for the future and your talk about how do we get sort of collective thinking what you know one of the big issues that we're all dealing with at the moment is working out how how do we come to the table, you know, as a communities or as impacted communities, how do we come to the table and have an opportunity to hear all voices so that all voices can um, be part of decision-making? And that's really our biggest challenge always. And I think that that sort of unpacked a little bit um, in the Assembly for the Future, but also your other work, how, how can we truly be democratic in these processes of presenting options or presenting different futures so that we can get the sense of where we fit within this intersectional space that we all exist in. Absolutely. And how can we elevate the voices of those that are the most impacted and have lived experience in particular areas? Um, not necessarily um, you know, in the immediate face of crisis because people need space to breathe and reflect and articulate solutions as well. It's not just, you know, your your immediate, your wisdom of lived experience is not always easy to articulate when you're right in it, in the, on the front line. But, yeah, how do we create um, a public discourse and public narratives that have this multiplicity of voices and wisdom um, from ordinary people with lived experience and how do we couple that wisdom with the wisdom of, you know, researchers and scientists and, and you know, it happens in all kinds of places. People already do this but, um, again, we, we're really up against very kind of centralised, narrow, unimaginative institutions that we've sort of built or turned our institutions into in the last sort of 30, 40 years. So we've got a lot of work to do to to democratise our structures and our organisations, our media landscape, and then obviously the way that we make decisions and work together. Yeah, and understand. And then I think the big, very big part of that is understanding the fluidity of time, and that we can't st- we can't structure around a kind of set time frame, which is often, well, is generally how emergency management disaster is kind of roll out. There's sectional time; it's not relational time. Yeah, and it's I found that quite fascinating with the pandemic actually, because initially there was this sort of sense of like. I mean, I think for in our in our day to day, or for me, time went. Time changed a lot. Um, you know, I was glued to the news. I also had both my children at home. Um, you know, like days felt very long and very full because of that. Um, and then I was also trying to do an enormous amount of things because I was very engaged and felt very urgent about this idea of, you know, having the right plans on the table and. You know, particularly when I saw the COVID commission pushing for this idea of the gas-led recovery, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, here we go! It's this is disaster capitalism 101." It's begun. You know, here we go, and we haven't even—we're still asking each other how we're going, and now what are we doing about it? While the gas industry is just barreling ahead. Um, but what I've actually found quite surprising is that even though there's been sort of quite a bit of like lifestyle writing about oh, isn't it nice to make sourdough bread and rediscover home and all this sort of stuff that 
that seemed to be around in the start of the first wave, I've found very few institutions have actually changed their expectations for outputs or work in this time. And it's uh, it's been quite unusual. Um, I think, you know, some of it I think is all of us um, trying to make sense of it by doing and by being busy mm. and responding. And I definitely have that urgency and, and impetus myself. But yeah, just amazing to me. That it's like digging digging the heels in yeah. and, and saying, "No, we're going to just continue. It's not going to Im- it's not going to make us change. Like we can resist. It's like a re- it's like that uh, resistance of the disease or disease that, that that that's been created in this yeah. space. Like it's not we're stronger than it. Absolutely, than thinking like, about the fluidity of how we work around it. Why didn't and school hours change? Like why didn't schools just you know, especially for younger kids whose parents might have also been working from home, why didn't they say, you know, school hours are now 10 till 2 or there's four hours of work but you can do it when's possible or, you know, why didn't... But but instead all of these um, very rigid schedules and many deadlines and many events, everyone just kind of stoically pushed them online and carried on with the same (laughs) deadlines, even though we were suddenly all working um, in a much more, you know, distributed way and also grappling with a pandemic. Like it's kind of, it's like we haven't given ourselves the space to actually grieve or process and, and at this stage in on this continent it's not it we we haven't had the massive loss of death that other countries have had yet but do we just keep carrying on and charging forward if we start to lose thousands and thousands of people I mean I think these are really important questions about time Mm. and um, how we respond and again I think returning to like the rigidity of a timetable or a schedule is is an is an impulse to have control and certainty and safety and I think we just because we it's almost like we forget that we just made them up you know like the calendar is made up the 24-hour clock is made up the school week seven days a week is is made up the the school five days of work, you know, nine to three thirty. All of that is—it's all invented, and we—it's all adaptable. But so we can re, reinvent. We could, but we we treat Re- it like reframe. that's our, you know, um, that's our foundation, and everything fits around that, rather than our humanity and our needs being the foundation, and then our institutions fitting around us. Um, so we we've got mm. a lot of a lot of rebuilding and reimagining to do. Well, that's right. And uh, going back to what we were saying earlier, this idea of practising, practising opportun- practicing what we think is impossible. And I think that's something that the that uh, creativity brings into this disaster space and why I think it's so important that we, we work to ensure artists are part of these processes is that we can imagine or reframe the impossible um, through creativity Absolutely. Nothing is in, nothing is set in stone. Yeah, absolutely. Retelling stories. Yeah, I'd like to, um, you know, this idea of retelling stories or telling stories and the power of the form of a story. And I think um, your work as a filmmaker is really strong in that space. And um, I'd like to talk about how you use that as a, as a way of looking for 
Future Change or Future Imagining. Um, you've been involved in producing several documentaries, but most importantly at the moment is the In My Blood It Runs. So this is a film directed by Maya, Maya Newell. Mm-hmm. Newell, is that right? Yeah, Maya Newell. Maya Newell. Yep. And you are a producer on this project. Um, so for those who haven't seen it yet, it follows the story of a young Aboriginal boy called Duan. And it gets a very intimate portrait of him and his family and their life. And through this um, very personal story, it kind of taps into some really big issues around race, um, education, colonialism, and particularly juvenile justice. And so in terms of a of using a kind of form like that, how do you see that as a way of building on this picture of, of reimagining futures? Well, I think that this film, the family, Duan and his family have just been so incredibly generous with the making of this film and, and the choices that they made about what they shared. Um, for the majority of, of um, a majority of people who live on this continent, we wouldn't see the inside of um, a home on a Aranda town camp in Alice Springs, uh, the home of a young 10-year-old boy, and we wouldn't experience the world through his eyes and know what he was up against but also know the joys and uh, adventures that his life holds. Um, and so starting with that amazing um, uh that amazing intimacy and that amazing access into his world, uh, it's a very different proposition to then, um, you know, step back out of that experience of watching the film and then think about what does education look like for a young First Nations kid um, in this country at this time and or what is the experience of a young kid in of the juvenile justice system I mean one of the really poignant moments in that film is watching Dwan and his brothers watch the Four Corners report about Dondale and I remember when I just saw that footage when after Maya had filmed it I, I thought wow I've actually hadn't thought about what watching that footage would be like for other young kids in the Northern Territory and it was that was you know a really um, poignant moment for me when I was watching that so one of the things that um Dewan's mother Megan spoke about because we, we Megan and Dewan and his grandmother Carol Turner who's also featured in the film and a, a whole lot of the rest of their family and um some senior Aranda advisors all worked really closely with Maya um, around the the creation of the film itself and then we've worked incredibly closely and been guided by their their goals really for what they wanted the film to do in the world and certainly there were things that they wanted to shift around juvenile justice and education and racism. One of the things that Megan said very early on and she's repeated many times in writing and media that she's done is that she wanted people to know that Aboriginal families loved their children. And to me, that is just such a powerful indictment on the state of things in Australia, so-called Australia, that um, an Aboriginal mother knows that she still needs to convince people of the fact that she loves her children. Um, And so when we think about other futures and other futures for Aranda people and young Aranda Garawa kids like Duan um, and the other 
having the agency to self-determine their own lives, to pursue education on country, to embed their own traditional language and cultural knowledges into their education system, being they have to fight for the permission to do that and part of that is about convincing the rest of you know so-called Australia and particularly policymakers that that they deserve to have the full expression of their humanity I mean that's the basis of it and it's it, it's really appalling when you dig into it and realize that that's still where we're at um, the, the legacy of you know racism and the othering of First Nations people that was done to justify invasion, um, still alive and well through policy and systems in Australia. Mm. And I think the big thing for me from that film was kind of referring back to what you were talking about earlier, this idea of the potentiality of transformation within this space of grief and loss and joy. You know the, that sort of maelstrom of what is life, and in in Joanne's world, deep um, layers of life. But there's transform the potential of transformation within that. It's very hopeful. Um, Absolutely, and I think you know we space. have to be settler Australians have to be cautious about um, extracting <laughs> extracting again wisdom, um, but. But I've certainly heard First Nations thinkers and writers and talking about climate change and, and saying, you know, we've already experienced an apocalypse. We've experienced our world being completely upturned, upended by the arrival of, of the invaders. And I do think that that does speak to, as well as tremendous loss, violence and trauma, also speaks to extraordinary subversion, survival, cultural continuity, creativity, artistic expression, cultural expression, um, despite everything that was stacked against communities. And I think that that's something that you see in this film. Um, and, mm. you know, mm, resilience seems like is, is kind of too, too thin a word, I think, um, because it, it's not, it's not as flippant as simply surviving. It's so complicated. And, yeah, whilst I say that we can't simply hope to extract knowledge from that survival, I certainly think that rather that we should be um, platforming the wisdom of First Nations people far more than we do um, and because... There's yeah, there not just because there's much to be learnt there, but because um, we've been in the way for so long. Mm. Yeah, so much, so much to unpack for for everyone. Mm. I'm just uh, wondering for yourself, Alex. We've just in this midst of COVID, and so much of your work is around the connection between your arts and your activism and these ideas of future thinking. What's the, can you tell us a bit, a bit about something that's occurred in your own life or your own community around how you would see yourself practising these better futures or how you've kind of put that into place with your family over the last little period of time or in your community? Hmm. Yeah, we 
um, moved a year and a half ago to a new place here on Jaja Wurong land in, in Castlemaine. And um, we've been, we, over the summer, like many people, you know, I had friends all over the place that were trapped by fires and um, was very worried and out of contact with people for a few days at different times. And um, we decided to call a first meeting of a um, mutual aid group. We call it West End Resilience. And we met, there's a little hall around the corner from us um, called the West End Hall. And we, we met in February initially to respond to the bushfires, but um, very quickly um, continued meeting on Zoom very regularly in response to, to the pandemic. And it was also, I was also really um, thinking quite a lot about, I had a small child, my second kid last year, he's now 10 months old, but um, Quinn was a newborn. And I was thinking about what's, what does pram scale organising look like? You know, I've, I've done lots of international <laughs> travel flying around on a plane. What does it look like if I um, work within a few blocks of my house where I can walk walk with a pram and take Quinn with me? Um, and so that's really the scale of our, um, our little our organising project. We, we ended up thinking, it, we weren't sure how many houses there were in the surrounding blocks, but it turns out there's nearly 500 when you actually walk around in letterbox because we had to keep printing flyers <laughs> to cover them mm, all. That's a lot, isn't it? We don't think about that in number sense. No. In terms of the streets that we live in. No. It's a lot of people. Yeah, we sort of thought, oh, maybe there's about 80 houses in these three blocks and these six cross streets. But anyway, it turned out to be 500 and, and we've got an email list, a WhatsApp group, and we meet um, every Tuesday night on Zoom, and it's 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 been really great. I mean, you know, a lot of simple things, swapping food and recipes, and sharing knowledge, and um, and sort of just a lot of just checking in, really, about how we're doing, and um, that was really useful, I think, because for some people, you know, older people whose kids have moved out, that. Um, they might have lots of time to practice hobbies and then those of us with small kids were like wow I can't imagine that and then people living on their own (laughs) were also very lonely when they would hear about families together so it sort of really built a sense of empathy I think across the difference different experiences um and the different experiences between homeowners and renters and the different kinds of security and safety that people are experiencing. Um, yeah, it's been really, and it, it's made it, it's really helped actually. Like even though we haven't been seeing many people, we do see each other on the street and wave and um, see each other on Zoom and it's it's been a really, um, yeah, it's been very grounding. Mm, building relationships and trust and the potential to grow that big word res- or small word resilience <laughs> yeah <laughs> which we all tout yeah great well thanks alex it's been a really interesting conversation and i really appreciate your time i know you're super busy um with so many different actions going on in your world at the moment so thank you for coming and sharing i look forward to joining you at the assembly for the future for the next Fantastic. phase and um, it's been uh, yeah it's really exciting to see what might come out of that and then how we might continue to grow those ideas thanks and yeah thank you it's always really useful to reflect on you know what what 
we're doing or trying to do and how and, and how it works. So I really look forward to hearing how your audiences and networks respond because, yeah, I have such deep respect for for your work and I know that you work with some communities that have, you know, really struggled in, in the last period of time and, um, yeah, I send my solidarity out to your collaborators as well. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for joining me for Creative Responders in Conversation. And a special thanks to Alex for sharing her insights and observations. As I mentioned at the top of the show, the documentary In My Blood It Runs is currently available on ABC iView. They also have a range of campaigns you can support through the film's website. If you'd like to know more about Assembly for the Future and access the dispatches from the digital gatherings, that project is part of the Bleed Festival, which you can find at bleedonline.net. We'll include links in the show notes to everything we have discussed in the episode, and you can also find other resources and transcripts for all of our episodes on our website. If you know a creative responder you think we should know about, or would like to share any feedback with us about the show, you can email us at comms, that's C-O-M-M-S, at creativerecovery.net.au. Or connect with Creative Recovery on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram and send us a message. This podcast is produced by me, Skosha Monkovich, and my Creative Recovery Network colleague, Jill Robson. Our sound engineer is Tiffany Demack, and original music is composed by Mikey Squire. A special thanks to Jessa Callahan and the team at AudioCraft. The Creative Recovery Network is assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council, its arts, funding and advisory body. Thanks for listening. Listener.